All right, well, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to the, to the book of Zechariah. And uh, while you're turning there, I uh, mentioned to you as kind of the preamble to this course that I thought it would be easier if you checked out Bible Project and read it and reread it a couple of different times because the book of Zechariah is, I don't know any better way to say this, it's a little weird. Um, it's, uh, it's filled with information about a time period, and it's pretty much uh, basically built around the theme of calling these people to return to the Lord. And that in itself is not all that unusual. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament, that was their basic theme. This particular one, though, uh, it helps us if we know a little bit about what was going on at the time when Zechariah was doing his preaching. So, let me have a word of prayer and then we'll get started, all right? Father, we thank you tonight for a chance to be together, even to tackle a book like Zechariah that at face value looks a little difficult. I'm certain that uh, when we're finished, we will have a better understanding of what you were trying to say through him. I just pray you'd teach us, Lord, through this part of the scripture. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Zechariah uh, taught as a prophet uh, as at, at the time frame when Israel was returning from exile. So, quick, quick review of Israel's history. Uh, it uh, started uh, years before. God was warning them, clean up your act, judgment's coming. They did not clean up their act, and in fact, finally... Uh, they were overcome by the uh, Syrians first, Assyrians rather first, and then uh, later the Babylonians. When the Babylonians took over Jerusalem itself, they grabbed a bunch of the of the smartest and brightest and most had the greatest potential young men and drugged them with them when they exiled all of the Israelites into Babylon. Among them would be Daniel. You know the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was one of those that were grabbed and moved out and, and in exile. According to Jeremiah, both chapter 25 and chapter 29, God foretold that they would be in exile uh, 70 years. And the time of our book of Zechariah is at the end of those 70 years. Those people that were held in exile are now returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. And they were given some specific jobs to do and some specific ways to do it. The big chart that I put on your on your notes, um, the secretary at school has been gone and was not able to put it into a better size for me. So that's my original dump it in there picture. But it gives you an idea that from the right hand side where you'll find the, the country or the excuse me, the city of Babylon over to the left side where you'll see Jerusalem, you can see that they went up essentially the Euphrates River and then down into into Israel. They came back in three waves, three waves of people. Um, the first wave started in about 538 BC and it took them about a year, a little less maybe to get there. Um, the story of that first wave of the Israelites returning is, is told in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. So, you know, a little reading assignment for the next two nights, get the book of Ezra out and read the first six chapters, and you'll know exactly what happened with that first wave. It had two leaders. One of the leaders was Zerubbabel, I love that name, and the other one was Joshua. Now, this is not the same Joshua as we found in the early parts of the Bible, this Joshua is a spiritual leader. The, um, the Zerubbabel is also a spiritual leader. They came back with a large crowd. 
over 47,000 people were in this wave. And so they had a big, huge caravan, came up and over, and, and came back into uh, Jerusalem. When they came into Jerusalem, the real focus, the job they were given to do, was to rebuild the temple. It had been destroyed. When Babylon attacked Jerusalem, it wiped out the temple as well as everything else. And so their job when they came back was to get, get busy and get that temple rebuilt. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel uh, accomplished that task, although the, the temple that he built was, was a cheap version of a temple. The first uh, t temple was built by Solomon. And, and if you remember in the Old Testament, the discussions of what to make of things and how to make them, what to, what to put on them, it was a very expensive building. It was gold and, and all kinds of precious things. When Zerubbabel came back and was ready to rebuild, they didn't have all that. David had, had stockpiled it. And so when Solomon built his, he had it all that was available to him. But Zerubbabel's got nothing. He's got, you know, fly, plywood, a couple of four by fours, and he's slapping together the best he can. That temple was sufficient for worship, but never made the Jewish people proud. In fact, if you go to uh, Israel today and you ask them, how many temples have you had in Jerusalem? They will tell you two. They don't even count this one, the one that Zerubbabel built. So Zerubbabel comes back, large crowd, first wave, and Joshua is a spiritual leader. Second, second group that comes back is uh, found in the last uh, six or five chapters of, of Ezra, chapter 7 through 10, I guess it would be four chapters. Ezra is leading this group. Now when Ezra gets there, and he's about 10 years, no, not 10 years, about, uh, let's see, longer than that, uh, almost 100 years, not quite, 80 years later. Um, when he shows up, his job uh, is to uh, get the, the process of the spiritual life going. Uh, the temple had been rebuilt. Now it was time for them to do the sacrifices, to get the priests in place and all of that. Um, his focus then as the leader, Ezra, was to be a spiritual, uh, his, his leadership was under the area of spiritual gifts. So then, literally about 12 years later, Nehemiah is going to bring the third wave back. And Nehemiah is, is, uh, is going to lead a group. We don't know how large it was. And you can read the book of Nehemiah, the first portion of it and get his story, he was to be focused on rebuilding the wall around the city. So Ezra comes back, and he's supposed to support, excuse me, uh, Joshua comes back, and he's supporting Zerubbabel, whose job it is to rebuild the temple. Then Ezra comes back, and it's his job to get all the sacrifices and everything going. And then Nehemiah comes back, and it's his job to get the wall to secure it all for the people of Israel. Now, all of that was supposed to take place so that they could come back and start doing their normal worship of Yahweh. Now, along comes Zechariah. Zechariah's name means uh, the Lord remembers. His job is to preach, just as all the other prophets did in the Old Testament, but he is, he is to preach in such a way as to energize the people of Israel, to get the jobs done, to get back into Israel and to get back to worshiping Yahweh like they were supposed to. He's going to give a very similar message as his compatriot, Haggai, who was preaching at the, uh, roughly the same time. Both of them are going to go after the people who are sitting around being lazy bones and not getting the job done. There is a difference, though. Haggai almost goes for the throat. And, and, and he, he really almost with sarcasm and wit and, 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 a, and a strong tone 
goes after the men and women who have come back out of out of exile and instead of devoting their attention to the worship of God have gone their own way he he kind of goes at them harshly at the same time Zechariah is preaching and he's going to take a slightly softer tone now he's still going to go after them he's still going to preach and and the main theme of it is this is a call to return to the Lord but he is going to interspace his his firmness with some encouragement. And and I I was attracted to the fact that when God wants to get our attention, he doesn't always use harshness. Yes, he disciplines. Yes, he holds us accountable. But but he has a heart for his people. And so the very name of this prophet, uh, the Lord remembers, sets the tone for a book of encouragement. And that's what I entitled this whole lesson, Be Encouraged. This particular lesson, you're going to, I hope, see that encouragement can come from the promise of his actual presence. So let me, let me give you one quick illustration that might help set this up. So I read about this guy. He was a, a track coach somewhere. I don't even know where. And, uh, and he had a, a, a good team, but he had one standout on the team that had an unbelievable potential. But this guy was a little bit of a hardhead, and he didn't really want to listen to his coach. But his coach knew if he would listen, he could draw him really, draw some great things out of him, and some incredible goals could be met. Well, this kid was, like I said, kind of a hardhead, didn't always listen. And so on this particular day, the coach admonished him, and as coaches often do, threw in some extra laps to try to get a, a sense of discipline with this guy. And the guy took off running, and you could see the look on his face. He wasn't absorbing it as any kind of encouragement or any kind of teaching tool. He was just mad. And, and after a lap or two, he, the coach realized that his goal of, of training this guy and turning them into the runner he could always see in him wasn't going to happen if this guy was just ticked. And so all of a sudden, the coach lumbered in behind him and started running with him. And after a little while, a number of the kids on the team did the same thing. And the last lap or two, however many there were, the whole team ran it. Now, the, the, the end result was the kid who was getting the discipline, he still got the discipline. But his coach was wise enough to know that, that the little element of encouragement along the way can help that guy take the discipline and continue to grow and develop into whatever it was he was supposed to be. That's how I'm taking Zachariah. I'm seeing him for his, his prophetic finger in your face, clean up your act, a call to return to the Lord. But I'm also seeing some interspacings of this encouragement. So um, let, me, let me show you how Haggai does it. If you have your Bible open, just turn over your eyes to the other side of the page. And that's the book of Haggai. It's not very long. And um, in, in this particular book, Haggai starts off his preaching. He, uh, he says... Um, Let's see, let's grab uh, verse 3. The word of the Lord uh, came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves, or is it? Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, that is the tabernacle, or, or actually the temple, while this temple remains in a ruin? In other words, Haggai says, give me a break. You've built this gorgeous home, paneled walls and everything. And you have ignored the rebuilding of the temple. And the real crime was without the temple, they had nowhere to worship God. So, so Haggai is in their face. Well, 
Zachariah is going to get in their face too, but he's not going to be quite so harsh. Let me, let me read uh, chapter 1, verse number 1 of Zechariah. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of, the son, excuse me, of Ber- Berechiah, the son of Idu. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers, the ones that he told that were going to fall into to, uh, disrepair and end up in exile. He's very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me. And if that's all he said, he sounds like Haggai. He's just in their face, got his finger up, preach it away. But he goes on to say, and I will return to you. Um, I, I think what I want to draw to your attention is that Zacharias seemed to understand that, that, that men and women will more readily repent when there is an, ele- an element of goodness associated with it. When we sense the, the, the goodness of God, we're more readily available or more readily apt to respond and, and genuinely repent of our sin. There's a, a verse I want you to see in Romans, Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4. New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 2, and verse number 4. Paul's got a a long discussion here going on about God's righteous judgment. In the middle of it, he says in verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The, another version would say, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not the harshness. Now, there are times when God is indeed harsh, when he's, in essence, had a fill. But, but what he's doing with the children of Israel here is giving them an opportunity to rebuild, to, to get the temple built, to restore the, the worshiping, and to have a relationship with God. Now, his promise is that he is going to be with them. If you will return, I will be there. Back to, back to Zechariah just for a second and check out that, that phrase again. And I, of course, have lost it. Here it is. He says, if you will return to me, I will return to you. Um, the, the idea, the concept is, I want to be with you. Are you going to hang around? Are you going to be there so I can? Now, one of the questions you and I ought to ask ourselves is how does God show up for human beings? Is there a pattern in the Old Testament and a different pattern for the New Testament? And the answer to that is yes. In the Old Testament, God, God showed up in a variety of ways. Let's start with the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created and given jobs in the garden, the Bible very specifically says in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 3, that God liked to come in the evening, in the cool of the evening, after everybody did their job, and sit down and have a conversation with Adam and Eve. He loved the fellowship. He loved being with them. He liked his presence to be with Adam and Eve in a very, very real way. And it wasn't until their sin broke that, that was his pattern. I don't know how long it took for that to happen, but he enjoyed being with mankind. And his presence was real, palpable, every day. But sin broke that. So now we move through the New Testament. We get into the book of Exodus where Moses is about to lead lead the children of Israel back into the promised land out of Egypt. 
And in, in that case, we're going to see that God chooses to meet with the Israelites in the tabernacle first, and then when they get into Jerusalem, the building of the temple. He has a place where he meets with them. He doesn't meet in the cool of the day in their garden. He has them come to a place, and the place is either tabernacle or, or, the, or the temple. He's very clear about what goes into the building of the tabernacle and what goes into the building of the temple and specifies where mankind can hear from God. The presence of God was, was limited to a, to a specific place. And, it, and, and in fact, only the males could go into a certain portion of that tabernacle or temple. Females were in another portion. Only the, high pri- or only the priest could go into the next section, and only the high priest could go actually into the place where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. So it was restricted to a specific location. Um, before they got there, I, I hesitated, I, I skipped this, I should have mentioned, that when they were wandering in the desert, he showed his presence by a cloud during the day and a flame of fire at night. He was demonstrating to them, I'm with you. And then, as I said, when they get to the tabernacle, he's going to meet them in that tabernacle or in the temple. It does say, though, in our Bible, in the Old Testament, that he came upon specific men. The Holy Spirit descended upon men for acts of service. In Isaiah, in chapter 61, he, he gets all excited about saying, you know, such and such was going on, and the Spirit of God descended upon me. It didn't reside on them all the time. It was only there for specific moments. So the presence of God was not something that they they could daily count on or turn around and know that he was standing there. They had to go up to Jerusalem. They had to go to the temple. They had to, they had to offer sacrifices. But you fast forward to the New Testament. Now the presence of God is different. Um, turn with me to the book of uh, John, chapter 14. And in John 14, it's the night before Jesus uh, dies. It's the night of his arrest. And he's just told his disciples that he's going to go away and they're wigging out. And in John 14, starting in about verse 16, he gives them a bit of a, not a bit, a a magnificent promise. He says, I'm going away and I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter or another counselor, another advocate. The word another there means just like the one you got. Just like me, I'm going to ask my Father to give you another. And he, that is this counselor, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he flat out promises in the New Testament that a man or woman who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit come and live within them. The presence of God is here. It's not in a building that we call church. It's not in a place like Jerusalem, it's not, it's not limited to certain people at certain times who are doing certain things. It's, it's available to any who put their faith and trust in Jesus. That same writer of John 14 wrote in his epistle, in chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. So, so we started out this study by saying, Zechariah is going to give some some tips, some encouragement, some 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 positive things while he's trying to get them to live their life correctly. And one of the greatest ideas of this whole concept of of God who is there 
or who remembers as in his name is this is this concept in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit residing within. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13, I put it in your notes. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So if, if the case that I'm making that God is present with his kids, those who are children of God who have claimed him as their savior, the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross of Calvary has been applied to you, you have the presence of God. Now, whatever he's expecting, whatever you have to, to live through or endure or have happen to you or to those around you that you love and care for, there is never a time for a believer to say, oh, God isn't here. Because he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So, so why then are there times when we feel like God is far away? You know, and, and the old adage, and it's kind of humorous, it goes kind of like this. If you feel far away from God, guess who moved? Well, it isn't God. Let me narrow it down for you. His presence is his promise. His promise is his presence. Zechariah started out by explaining to these people who were, were uphill sledding about how to set up the worship and get back to having God have a first place in their life. He's, he's expressing, hey, you return to him, he'll return to you. Thomas Merton, in his book, No Man is an Island, and I'm not promoting this book, but I love this concept, but you got to listen carefully to understand it. He wrote this, God, who is everywhere, never leaves us. He sometimes seems to be present and sometimes to be absent. If we don't know him well, we do not realize that he may be more present to us when he is absent than when he is present. You get it? In other words, those times when we feel like, so where are you, God? I'm in a pickle of a mess here. The truth of the matter is he never left. He never moved. You and I shifted. When you're disciplining one of your children and you're in their face, What's the fellowship like between the two of you right that moment? Warm and fuzzy? Do they just can't wait to throw their arms around you and tell you how much they love you? And boy, thanks a lot for dinner. And oh, it was great. And you want to snuggle for a while, mom? No, that's not what happens. They, they withdraw a little. They feel like mom doesn't love them anymore. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hopefully you weren't disciplining in the flesh. But if you were disciplining properly, you were trying to get them to become a disciple, that's what to discipline means. Make a disciple, one who follows after Jesus. So even though the dis discipline itself may have seemed a bit harsh, the concept is not to shove them away, it's to draw them in. And that's exactly what God's trying to get across. There, there is no time when God is not with us, even when we're getting a, a boatload of discipline. God is always with his kids. I can't emphasize that enough. Always, always with his kids, no matter what their attitude, no matter where they are, no matter what the circumstances of their life are. 
Now I put a bunch of notes in your, or a bunch of notations of verses in your notes. I want to read just a few of them to you. One of the ones that I love particularly well is in Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. He says there, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. That doesn't sound like he's gone anywhere. Here's one in Joshua 1.9. God's encouraging Joshua as he starts his his leadership of Israel. He says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, that doesn't mean when you're pleasing God with your behavior, he, he follows. No, he never leaves. You have a sense that he's moved because you are turning your back. It's because you're not going to want to look you quite in the eyes right this moment. You're kind of in the moment of a discipline. And, and it's hard to warm up. But he never moved. In the Great Commission, when he gives the Great Commission at the end of each of the Gospels, like, for example, the one in Matthew 28, listen to this. He taught them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And lo, I am what? With you, even unto the end of the age. I'm not going anywhere. And lastly, the one that, that has been such an encouragement to so many for so many centuries, Romans 8. It says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. He's just covering every eventuality. There is nothing that can move God out of the presence of his kids. So, what's the so what? Well, I had a whole slew of things that I thought about, and, and, I, and I gave about five of them. Let me give them to you just from my heart. It is, it is important that as kids trying to become more and more like Christ with each year that passes... So if you came to know the Lord 52 years ago, like I did, there, there's supposed to be some growth. I, there's supposed to be some ways in which I am more like Christ than I was 52 years ago. And every now and then I get a little frustrated with myself because it doesn't look like that, at least from my vantage point. Or if you came to know the Lord a year ago, you still should have some, some trackable things that you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm, yeah, I, I'm more obedient there. Yeah, I'm quicker to respond to God there. Yes, I'm listening better about that or this. Or I've, I've chosen to deny myself that so I could worship him this way. There is, there is growth. There's supposed to be progress. And, and if we get to the place where we're not feeling God in our lives, we need to, to start with number one. It might be time to kind of clean house. It might be time to come clean to God. You know, it's like the little kid who comes in with, you know, chocolate all over their face. And you say, have you been in the chocolate cake? And they go, mm-mm, mm-mm. And, you know, I mean, it's smeared. May's got it all over her face. And she's going, mm-mm, mm-mm. Or, you know, pointing to her brother or sister. She doesn't have one, so it doesn't work. But, you know, the old, they did it, I didn't kind of stuff. Well, we do that same thing with God. It's not chocolate on our face, but I think he must, he must put his hand over his mouth so he can chuckle a little. 
Like, oh my goodness, Sherry, you're really going to try to tell me you didn't do that? So the place we want to start here is, is whatever is on our list that we need to come clean with God on. You know, are there things in our lives that the Holy Spirit has taken his flashlight and said, hmm, how about that? Let's work on that. That could use a little changing. And we either respond with, yes, I will, or, mm-hmm, I couldn't hear you. You know, I can't, too much interference, didn't quite catch that. In 1 John chapter uh, 1, verse number 9 says, that um, oh, that, that's a good one for us all to turn to. So if we were in John, just keep going towards the end of the book. And a couple of books be, uh, before Revelation. First John 1 John 1.9. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we come clean with God. The word confess just means say the same thing about it that God does. So if God calls it a lie, don't call it a fudge. Don't, don't say, well, it's a little white lie, all for their benefit. No, it was a lie. Call it a lie. And, and, and don't say, well, I sort of lost my temper, but I wouldn't have if he hadn't. No, you confess it. You say what God would say about it. I lost my temper. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We hold on to that stuff like, oh, I don't want to deal with it, or I don't want him to see it. Again, I think he has his hand over his face chuckling. You know, like, the, like, like May puts her hand over her face so you can't see the chocolate that's oozing out of her fingers. And she goes, no, I didn't eat it. I didn't eat it. Well, of course you did. If you would confess it, if you would come clean about it, God has an opportunity to do a work in your heart. Now, sometimes we have to do that, you know, 53,000 times or, or maybe just two or three times, depending on your nature. But, it, but, it, but this business of sensing the presence, he's always there. But sensing his presence can be affected by how long our sin list is. The other day, you'll laugh about this. Um, I was uh, going to bed, and I, was, I have a couple of habits uh, just before I go off to sleep. And one of the habits is to kind of review my day. And, uh, and so I quickly ran through the day, and I was talking to the Lord, and I said, well, you know, it wasn't too bad today. And then there was this little pause and hum from heaven. And I went, okay, let me go through a little more thoroughly. And so then I started in my mind back to, you know, 8 o'clock or 6.15, I woke up. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, I was grumbling about, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm, I was grumbling about that, yeah, yeah. What, well, what did I say, that guy that cut me off on the freeway? Well, I didn't cuss. Yeah, I was pretty frustrated at him. Uh, I mean, I couldn't get to 10 o'clock. And I had a, a nice list. And you would say, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. Look, anything that isn't on the mark is sin. The word sin in our Bible, all the definitions for the various words that are translated sin, all have to do with missing the mark. And it doesn't matter whether you miss the mark to the right, or you miss the mark to the left, or you fall short, or it spins over. If you don't hit the mark, it's sin. So the place to start when we feel far away from God, even though he's never moved, is to come clean with him. And to do so every single day. Second thing that I think can help us uh, is to saturate our lives with Scripture. And I chose the word saturate on, 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 on purpose. You know, look, excuse me, lots of times um, Bible teachers will talk about you need to be in the Word. You need to get up in the morning and be in the Word. You need to 
You need to be in the Word. Read at least in a, I'm this far along every day, blah, 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 this reading tablet, uh, not reading tablet, reading program. I'm not saying that. I'm saying saturate your life. I'm not saying read two chapters. For, for a young mother who's up all night with her, you know, the baby she's feeding and up half the day and snatching half hour naps, just trying to get through life for the first few months, she cannot get up at four in the morning, sit with her Bible and have an hour of wonderful devotions with God. It's just not going to happen. And, and other people have other circumstances. Some of us can do that. Some of us can have other patterns. It doesn't matter what the pattern is. What matters is if we're saturating our life with the Word of God. Is, is everything around us saying something to us about God? Is the music we listen to, and I love country and western music, and my default music is, you know, 60s bubblegum music. But, but, but if I have that on, my mind just is, you know, like eating, I don't know, ice cream or something. But if I, if I can get some songs on, like I've got two or three new favorites, if I get them on, they draw me into the presence of God. Music does that. Saturate your life. Are you memorizing scripture? Um, is there a passage? I realized a couple of days ago, I don't, I don't have a current passage that I'm trying to memorize. And so I, I, I went rooting around trying to find which one's going to be the next passage I'm going to try to memorize. I, I need to saturate it. It takes some work. But if I'm going to constantly understand his presence, that's one of the steps. Coming clean about my sin and then saturating my life with scripture. The third one uh, comes up from a lot of the, oh, some of the early 300 uh, uh, AD uh, monks and various people that, that hid away in, in, in caves and so on and so forth. Some of them were mystics. Some of them were just people trying to worship God. One of the concepts that came out of probably that period of time is something that we've come to know as breath prayers. Now, this isn't just a, a regular prayer where we bow our head and we ask in Jesus' name a certain number of things or, or glorify him, hopefully first. But breath prayers are very short, might even be a word or two, certainly no longer than a phrase or two. But they come up all day long. They come up when we're driving, they come up in the shower, they come up when we're meeting our first appointment, they come up when we go to the restroom, they come up, they come up, they come up, they come up, because they're not limited. And, and a breath prayer sometimes can even take a special tone. And one writer I was looking at this week, he suggests that there's actually a breathing pattern that goes with them. So let's take, for example, the, the first of two phrases in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, so a breath prayer would be, the Lord is my shepherd. That could be enough. So when you're, when you're fussing and you're not sure God's anywhere near you and things are falling apart, you can say to yourself, wait, 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 wait. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have to say more than that for a, for a mental adjustment. But a breath prayer, sometimes one guy was talking about, you inhale on the first phrase and exhale on the second phrase. So in this case, it would be, the Lord is... I can't do it now that I'm trying to show you, but you would inhale as you would say, the Lord is my shepherd, and you would exhale as you say, I shall not want. Now you practice that, and that drives you into recognizing who's standing there. He never moved, but you and I have to, we have to have us juggled up a little bit so that we can sense his presence, and a breath prayer can help us do that. 
I mentioned this a moment ago about, about music, and it's such a powerful tool because it engages our emotions. Sometimes our prayers are pretty cerebral. Not always, but sometimes. We're looking for the right word, a theological word, and we want it to sound right, especially if we're praying in front of people. But, but, but when we sing, our emotions get involved. And it doesn't matter whether you're a good singer or not. I am definitely not. But I love to sing. I love to worship God through music. I've told you before, one of my favorite things to do is to take a songbook, an old-fashioned hymn book, and then just start in the front and sing my way through the hymns. And, and or, like all of you, we have songs on our, on our phones. And, you know, they come up on our, in our cars. We turn the car on and, boy, there it is. Um, those are a way to release our emotions. We're worried. We're concerned. We don't. We don't know where God is. This situation is really, really face that we're facing is really dire, and suddenly when we we start singing, there's another in the fire. It's pretty hard to hold that concept of where's God. Yeah, He's right there, and your emotions connect through that music. And lastly, I would suggest to you, and something that I think can be a tool to be reminding you on a, on a regular basis of God's presence is to say his name out loud. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. So if you were in John earlier, the next one down is Acts, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. So um, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have made their way uh, towards the temple, I believe, and they're both, or maybe they've come out of, and they're, they're being uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin. I think that's what's happening. Anyway, in the middle of their message back to the Sanhedrin, who are trying to question them and make them uh, turn on their God, uh, verse 12 shows up, and, and this is what it says, right in the middle of, of Peter's message. He says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. The most significant name in all of the world is Jesus. And sometimes when we are in a situation like the Israelites were, faced with building a, a temple, faced with restoring the sacrificial system, faced with not being so concerned about their own needs, and instead of uh, facing the responsibility to get the worship of Yahweh going again, they, they, they thought they were in a mess. And there are situations where you and I find ourselves equally in a mess. And, and, and we try to bring up scripture and whoa, it's rolling around because it's a dire moment. And, and there's no music around and there, you can't find your Bible, you're here, you're there. Sometimes just repeating the name of Jesus or one of his other titles or names out of the Old Testament that you know the meaning of, that will drive you back to understanding the presence of God. The scripture says in Psalm 23, we quoted the first verse earlier, the, the, the last verse says this, Yea, though I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, which is not death itself, it's just a time that feels like it. Yea, though I walk through the worst of circumstances, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I, it, you cannot come up with a set of circumstances where we're going to go through it alone. 
And, and, and I think that that was meant by Zechariah before he starts talking about all of his weird dreams and all the other things and starts nailing them for all the things that they should be nailed for. He wanted to make sure that they had some encouragement out of the promise of God's presence. And I think that ought to encourage you and me too. So let me pray. Father, I pray that you would make this lesson clear to us, even as we roll it around in our heads uh, tomorrow or the next day. May we sense your presence and deal with life as if you were standing right beside us, because in fact you are. Thank you for this portion of scripture and your promise to be with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.